Uh, do you sometimes feel God has asked too much of you? Too much for us, of us as his church? It's hard enough just getting through the day, getting through the week, but then you hear some of the things Jesus says and you just feel overwhelmed. Uh, Jesus tells his followers, give to the one who asks you, And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But you think, I'm just scraping by. How can I give anything, let alone to anyone who asks? Or just before his ascension, Jesus gave the apostles this number one priority. Jesus commanded, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the everything probably includes those commands just then. How do you feel when you hear this? It feels like an impossible task. All nations, the world is very big. There are lots of people in it. It's a big ask. And even if you shrink the multinational task and just think about our own nation, or even just our own region, our neighbours, family, friends. There are over 53,000 people in the Gympie region. What percentage of them are followers, are disciples of Jesus? There are tens of thousands of people in our region who don't know Jesus. How do you feel when you hear this? Let alone the millions around the world. And Jesus has given us, his church, the task of telling them, going, teaching, baptizing, it's huge. An insurmountable mountain to climb. We can feel hopeless and helpless in front of a task like this. And I reckon many churches, many Christians, maybe you and I, we've given up. And so we think, let's just batten the hatches, keep things safe in our churches, in our homes, and the last one out can turn out the lights. If that's the way we feel, then what God said to his people thousands of years ago, what God says through the prophet Zechariah is what you and I, it's what we need to hear, church. Back in Zechariah's day, the problem, the challenge God's people faced was physical and spiritual. Zechariah is the prophecy we're listening to at the moment. The historical background for Zechariah is recorded in the book of Ezra. The context is God's people have begun to return from exile. They had been sent away, taken away as prisoners of war to Babylon, but God has allowed them to return to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But there's been problems, opposition to building God's temple. And in Ezra 5, I'll put it up on the screen, Ezra 5, we're told, God sent prophets to instruct and encourage the people to rebuild the temple, Ezra 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, so that's the book we're looking at, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Now we met Joshua In Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua is the high priest in dirty clothes. But we saw the amazing statement, the amazing promise of God, God would take away sin, give him clean clothes. And with a pure priest, 
sin in God's people can be dealt with. So Joshua is the high priest. Zerubbabel is the governor. If you flick back in your Bible to Zechariah 1.1, remember Darius is the king. Darius is the Persian emperor, the most powerful man in the world. And there are various regional governors underneath him. Zerubbabel is the bottom rung governor. He's the governor over the returned exiles living in the rubble of Jerusalem and Judea. And whilst Zerubbabel has very little power, he's not at all impressive. There's lots of excitement around him because he is a descendant of King David. In fact, he is listed as a descendant of David in Matthew 1, the family tree of Jesus. And so even though Zerubbabel is merely governor, he is merely governor, there are whispers of messianic hope. Maybe Zerubbabel will be the one to restore David's kingdom. Maybe he'll overthrow King Darius. Maybe Zerubbabel is even... Maybe he is even the promised forever king, the serpent crusher who will bring in God's new age. There are whispers of hope. But at the same time, as you walked the streets of Jerusalem, hope was crushed by reality. The temple is merely foundations. There's been no progress on the great temple of Yahweh for years. It's just a mountain of broken stones. This is the context of Zechariah 4 to 6. Now, we're entering into the middle of a vision God gave Zechariah. The vision starts in chapter 1. By my count, there are nine scenes in this vision. You can count them differently. We're going to briefly look at scenes 6, 7, 8 and 9 today. So in the sixth scene, that's chapter four, Zechariah sees a kind of pre-industrial renewable energy system, an oil lamp flanked by two olive trees, and there are two pipes coming from the trees, constantly refilling the oil bowl so the lamps can burn forever. So here's the vision described from verse two. He, the angel, asked me, what do you, Zechariah, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Uh, The pipes don't get described at this point. If you jump down to verse 12, Zechariah mentions verse 12, two olive branches, so the trees have become branches, beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil. All right, so that's what he sees. Now, the description of the lampstand with seven lamps might make you think of a menorah, uh, which you sometimes see in Jewish symbolism. Uh, you can see an example of it on the screen. That's from a Roman engraving celebrating the looting of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. This temple does not get much of a good run for it. That's probably not what Zechariah saw. That style of lamp wasn't developed until about the time of Jesus. Most likely it's a lamp more like this illustration, a bowl with seven kind of lips, kind of squeeze bits or seven spouts. That's quite a fancy version. Each lip then would have a wick or a channel that burns to give light. The question is not so much what's the actual, you know, engineering of this thing. What does it mean? And what do the the two olive trees, what do they represent? 
Now, you're probably quite confused. Don't worry, because remember, this kind of writing, apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic visions, the good thing about them is that they're confusing, but there's normally someone to tell us what it means, actually in the vision itself, an angelic guide to explain what it means. And in this vision, chapter 4, Zechariah asks, I was going to say that, three times what the vision means. He asks, what does the whole scene mean? And we're going to come back to that. He also asks what the two olive trees represent. He never asks what the lampstand represents. So first up, let's find out what the two olive trees represent. So look down at verse 11, Zechariah 4.11. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He, that's the angel, replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. Very good company. Even Zechariah doesn't get it. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Get it? The two trees represent two people. Anointing means oil being poured on someone or something. In the Old Testament, anointing marks someone for a particular office or role. Priests kings and prophets were anointed. It's why the other week King Charles was anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's picking up on this ancient symbolism. So the two olive trees are two anointed people. Well, who are they? In the context of the vision, it's Joshua, the high priest from chapter 3, and it's Zerubbabel, the governor. He's not quite a king, but the point is he is an anointed person. And in this vision, oil, and it's not just any oil, it's golden oil, is being supplied through the trees, through the anointed people, to the lamps. And so that brings us back to the lamps. What are they? Zechariah doesn't ask. And I wish he did. I think he doesn't ask because he already knows. It was the one bit of the vision he knew exactly what it was about. Well, where else in the Bible do we come across a lampstand with seven lamps? Okay, so that's the key. If Zechariah doesn't ask, he must know, but he must know because it's already in the Bible somewhere else. Well, back in Exodus, God told Moses to build a golden lampstand with seven lamps. Exodus 25, make a lampstand of pure gold, then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. In the tabernacle, this lamp represents God's people being in God's presence. There's seven lamps on it. Remember, seven symbolizes completeness or wholeness. So it's symbolic. This one lampstand with the seven lamps is symbolic of the whole people of God. And that's why at the start of Revelation, there are also seven lampstands representing the seven churches, all of God's people. Exodus, Zechariah, Revelation, It's the same imagery. Okay, so we've got lamps representing the people of God. What's this whole thing mean? Uh, The vision means that through these anointed leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, God is empowering. He's supplying all of his people. He's supplying to them everything they need to do the job of building the temple. And that's what the angel explains to Zechariah. So let's go back to verse 6. 
the, the first time the angel answers the question. So he, the angel, said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me, that Zechariah, has sent me to you, the people of Israel. Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. So what's God saying? There is a huge mountain ahead of Zerubbabel and a huge mountain in front of God's people. Both a literal mountain of the rubble where a temple should stand, but also the mountains of political opposition and also personal tiredness and frustration, disappointment and helplessness and hopelessness. But God says, uh-uh, before you, those mountains, they're, they're flat ground. The ground's already, we've already done the groundwork, the bulldozers have come in, and you can build this temple, not because of anything within you, not because of Zerubbabel's political know-how, not because Joshua is also not only a priest but a fantastic engineer and not because you're going to raise an army and kick out the, the Persians and not because you're going to invent some ancient bulldozer. No, what you need is God's spirit. That's the only thing you need. Your power, your ability comes from God's spirit. What you need is the constant, eternally renewed supply of golden oil, the spirit of God. Human might, human power is not what they need. They don't need human tactics or strategy because they have God's spirit. And Zechariah, the prophet, is confident of this. He stakes his reputation as a true prophet of God on this. Verse 8 is deadly serious. Have a look at it. Verse 8, if Zerubbabel himself does not finish the temple, Zechariah is a false prophet. And according to God's law, false prophets are executed. Verse 8, deadly serious. But God says... Zechariah says, sorry, God says through Zechariah, hey, you guys, don't look at what's ahead of you. Don't look at the mountains in front of you. Have confidence that Zerubbabel himself will be the one to complete the temple by the power of God's spirit. And Zechariah was spot on. This vision was given, we're told in Zechariah 1.7, it was given at the end of the second year of Darius's reign. And Ezra 6.14 says, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Idu. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Less than four years after this vision, the mountain becomes a temple. And the people cried out, God bless it, God bless it. Zechariah was shown a true prophet and none of this was by their might or power. All of it was by God's spirit. But back now to Zechariah's vision because it continues. Because now that 
the temple is built, well, in Zechariah's vision, it's not yet, but it will be. Because the temple is built, God is present with his people. The high priest has clean clothes, chapter 3. Now, sin can be dealt with, sin can be removed. And that's the main point of the final three scenes in the vision. Uh, The next scene is at the start of chapter 5. Zechariah sees a giant flying scroll. It is massive. It's, It's like one of those planes that tow the banner behind it. But this banner, it's not advertising. It's also not wishing anyone a happy birthday. This massive banner, this flying billboard, proclaims judgment Verse 1, have a look, Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. I looked again and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. You don't probably measure in cubits, trust me, it's big. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. So the message on the scroll, the the flying billboard, God will punish liars and thieves. It's serious. The next scene is strange, but the message is similar. In this vision, sin, and it's either the sin of idolatry or greed, sin is taken away, removed from God's people. Verse 5, Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what is appearing. And I asked, What is it? He replied, It is a basket. And he added, This is the iniquity, the sin, of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed his lead cover down on it. Now, I think this wins the weirdest vision that we've seen. And it's not only weird, but it's disturbing. It seems cruel, even misogynistic. Unfortunately, uh, the translation doesn't help us too much. Uh, The word translated basket is literally ephah. An ephah was a a unit of measure, a bit over 20 litres. It's a standard measure used for buying and selling grain. So this picture is now even weirder. This lady is teeny tiny. She can fit inside kind of two 10-litre buckets. What's the point? Well, either our focus should be on the basket, this is iniquity, it's meant to be on the ephah, and if that's the case... Greed is being condemned. God is judging merchants who cheat and steal. They charge you for an ephah of grain, but really it's only three quarters because, you know, because it's a small basket. Or else our focus is meant to be on the woman, this is wickedness, who isn't a human, but an idol, a statue of a woman, which explains why she can fit in an ephah-sized basket. If that's the case, it's idol worship which is being judged But even better, it's not just being judged, it's being removed from God's people. Because as the vision continues, the rest of chapter 5, the basket is flowing away from God's people, it's carried north, and the ephah basket is put in a pagan temple in Babylonia. Now there is lots to take in here. When you put these two scenes together, the 
the flying billboard and the flying lady in a basket, we see that sin is smashed and removed. It's like the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This was a yearly ceremony in Israel. Two goats were involved. One was killed on the altar. The other was removed, taken into the wilderness. Two pictures of how God deals with sin. Sin is removed and sin is punished. And that's what these scenes promise and also warn. It's a promise with an anointed priest, an anointed ruler in a new temple. God is going to deal with sin. He's going to take it away. But it's also a warning. Turn from your sin or be crushed and driven away. So that's scene seven and eight. Final scene, chapter six. God deals with sin by conquering, uh, destroying his enemies. This scene, this final scene, actually also takes us back to the beginning. In the first scene, Zechariah 1, there were four horses patrolling the earth. In Zechariah 6, there are four horses. They go out from God's presence and they bring rest to God's spirit in the north country. So read with me from verse 5, Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 5. The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses toward the west, and the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, the land of the north, it's the same place where the ephah of wickedness was taken in the previous vision. The land of Babylon, where God's people had just been taken as prisoners of war, Babylon symbolic of all God's enemies. In chapter 1, we hear a report that the, the nations are at rest. And that was a bad thing, because they were at rest, they were comfortable and confident despite being God's enemies. But here at the end of chapter 6, in the final scene of Zechariah's vision, It's not the nations that are at rest, but God's spirit who is at rest in the land of the north. Now, why is God's spirit at rest and why is up there and not at rest in the land of God's promise? Well, he is at rest because the war is over. God's enemies have been conquered. There's no more battle. There's no more fighting. There's rest because of the victory. The same spirit who empowers and enables God's people to build the temple. That spirit that flows through the priest and the governor, God's two anointed ones, that same spirit, the final vision, conquers the enemies of God. Now, this is an uplifting message for Zerubbabel and for the exiles who returned from Jerusalem. We saw in Ezra, this inspired them, it encouraged them, it gave them courage and confidence. God's spirit enabled them to flatten the mountains and rebuild the temple in less than four years. It's great for them, two and a half thousand years ago. What about us? What is God saying to you and me and our church today through Zechariah 4 to 6? Because this is a very specific vision, isn't it? The two olive trees are Joshua and Zerubbabel. 
the proof that Zechariah was a true prophet, was that Zerubbabel would be put there, would be there at the opening ceremony, putting in the final stone in the temple. What's it mean to us? We're going to see more of this next week as we finish chapter 6. But in Jesus, those two anointed roles, well actually the three, all three, they come together in one person. As Jesus is both God's priest and God's king. And as the anointed one, that's what Christ or Messiah literally means. Every time we call Jesus the Christ, we're saying he is the anointed one. As the anointed one, Jesus, in his ascension, promises to pour out his spirit without measure on anyone who trusts in him. Uh, By coincidence, or maybe in God's providence, today is what some Christians call Ascension Sunday. Last Thursday was 40 days since Resurrection Sunday. 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so many Christians celebrate Jesus' ascension today. His coming on the clouds of heaven to the right hand of the Father. And do you know what? One of the privileges, one of the blessings we have, because Jesus is ascended, we often don't think about his ascension, do we? We think about his death, lots, his resurrection a bit, his ascension, eh. without his ascension, this would never happen. Without his ascension, we wouldn't have the spirit. It's because of Jesus' ascension that we have the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. On In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted, ascended, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Do you get what Peter says? Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, is now ascended and exalted at God's right hand. And because of this fact... He pours out the golden oil of his spirit. Last year and the start of this year, we worked through the book of Acts. In Acts, the spirit is God's empowerment for mission. God gives his spirit so that God's people, the apostles, but not just the apostles, everyday Christians as well, all of God's people, can go into the world, proclaim that Jesus is alive, make disciples, baptize and teach. We hear Jesus' command, go, make disciples, and we look at the mountains. We look at the obstacles, the difficulties before us, the sheer numbers, the cultural pressures. Like the people of Zechariah's day, we are discouraged and hopeless. But God says to us today, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. We must know Jesus promises to be with us, even as he gives us the task of going to the nations. Matthew 28 finishes, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and... And this is the encouragement. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Brothers and sisters, we need eyes to see not the mountain ahead, but the spirit within us. 
We need eyes to see not the mountain ahead, but the cross of Christ and the empty tomb and sin removed because of the enemies he has defeated. Church, do we despise the day of small things? It's really easy to, isn't it? We look at our church and even if we look at all the Bible teaching, gospel believing churches in Gympie, compared to the tens of thousands of people out there, it is a day of small things. But God's word to us today is to be encouraged to obey Jesus, trusting in his spirit who empowers us, his church, to accomplish what Jesus commanded. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you continue to speak through your ancient prophets. We praise you that the same spirit who empowered and enabled your people Israel to rebuild the temple is the same spirit poured out by the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. Strengthen us, our great God, to not look at the mountains ahead, but to know that your spirit dwells in us, your people, and that Jesus is with us. Strengthen us to go and make disciples in our region and beyond. Amen.